we're going past the tanks that are pointing outward and past the snipers who are laying down in the field. And we go right out into Northern Iraq and we're driving through the countryside. And I, I'm like, what is going on here? It's just me and Bob <laughs> driving to Mosul. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode of War Docs, we are pleased to hear from Dr. Benjamin Starnes, who is the Chief of Vascular Surgery and Vice Chair of Surgery at the University of Washington in Seattle. Prior to accepting his position, Dr. Starnes spent a total of 15 years in the United States Army, serving three combat tours, one in Kosovo and two in Iraq. On 9-11-2001, Dr. Starnes was one of the first responders to the Pentagon while stationed at nearby Walter Reed Hospital. You can read more about Dr. Starnes and read his bio at wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of Wardocs, we're privileged to welcome former Army Medical Corps Lieutenant Colonel and current professor and chief of vascular surgery at the University of Washington School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Starnes. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. I'm pleased to be here. Dr. Starnes, you spent 15 years in the Army. What led you to join the Army and what inspired you to medicine and ultimately a career in vascular surgery? What made me join the Army? Well, I was the youngest of three boys from Odessa, Delaware. And my parents had just finished paying for three college educations. And my dad told me, hey, son, we're struggling here. And I think if you're going to go to medical school, you're going to have to pay for it yourself or take out some loans. And so there was an Army scholarship program, the Health Professions Scholarship Program. There were 55 medical students who applied for that in my medical school class, and they awarded 12 scholarships. And I was lucky enough to be an awardee of one of those. And so that's why I joined the Army, was to help pay for medical school and to achieve my dreams. What inspired me to medicine and ultimately vascular surgery? Well, uh, some of you have heard my presidential address for the Western Vascular Society called Zen and the Art of Bandsaw Maintenance. You'll understand that when I was 10 years old, I cut my middle finger on my, my dad's bandsaw in the wood shop, and it was during the Masters tournament, and he was inside watching golf, and I came in and told him that I'd cut myself on the bandsaw. And he looked at it very intently and was at first worried about me. But then he, re when he realized it was just a little flesh wound, he said, well, congratulations, son, you're now a full-fledged woodworker. You can't be a full-fledged woodworker until you cut yourself on one of these machines. And he took me in to get sewed up and I was entranced. I was hooked. I just loved medicine. I loved the fact that the numbing medicine that the doctor could sew up my finger and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So I started to steer my myself toward medicine and becoming a doctor. You finished your medical school and residency in general surgery. And after that, you were stationed in Heidelberg, Germany, and also deployed to the Balkans. And this was before Iraq and Afghanistan really started. Can you tell us about that experience and any memorable stories from that deployment? That was my first combat deployment as a general surgeon. Um, it was, it was pretty interesting because the internet was a new concept being used on the battlefield. And we had a, what was called a VSAT device, like a video satellite device where we could use the internet, but it was very slow. And I left my wife in Germany, and this was when we were bombing Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. 
and it was kind of a sterile war and we were in support of the Apache helicopters. So there was a multiple launch rocket brigade. It was Task Force Hawk is what it was called. And the goal there was to take out grid squares along the southern border of Kosovo and to go in with Apache helicopters and turn around and basically kill tanks from inside Kosovo and then do these deep strike operations in and then bring the helicopters out. But they didn't want any ground troops invading into Kosovo. I was with the 212th MASH. That was the last mobile army surgical hospital. Colonel Orloff was my commander. And we had about 39 or 40 personnel. It was much larger than a modern forward surgical team, but it had a heavy footprint. It, it required a railhead to get all of the uh, connexes in and to set up the hospital. It was a full-blown MASH hospital. And some of the memorable events of that were that we were simulating a downed pilot scenario in Kosovo. And we were participating in this exercise. And the actual helicopter pilot who was supposed to be the downed pilot crashed his Apache helicopter. He had a wire strike. You know, there were a lot of unmarked wires in Kosovo and they have these cutters on the, the bottom of the rotor, just underneath the blade that are supposed to cut those wires. Well, he ran into a wire and it didn't cut the wire and it caused the helicopter to crash. And so we heard pressured speech over the radio when they were bringing them, the casualties to us. And it didn't make any sense to me it, it, uh, that these guys, we were, I was like, these guys are really playing this up. I mean, but it actually was real blood. When they brought the guys in, they they were banged up, bruised up, broken bones, uh, but they were alive. And I just remember that one of the unusual things about that time period was that we were able to call home. And this was the first time that we were able to call home. We've been in, in theater for about three weeks. We had set aside five minutes for each person to be able to call their loved one. And we let all the enlisted guys go first. And I was scheduled to call my wife in Germany at midnight that night. And I walked into the TAC, that's the Tactical Operations Center, and nobody was in there. And I saw that it was midnight. I just finished taking care of these helicopter pilots. And I'm looking at them through the door. And I get on the phone and it goes right through. That's unheard of. It just went right through to Germany. I, my wife picks up the phone, says, hello. And my, at that minute, my uh, first sergeant walks in and says, sir, put down that phone. All communications are off until further notice. And so I kind of paused and I said, uh, honey, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I got to go. I can't talk to you. And this is the first time I've talked to her in three weeks. And she starts to cry and she says, I'm watching CNN right now. And they're showing footage of a burning helicopter in Kosovo. And they said that they took the casualties to a army medical unit in Albania. Is that you? And I said, honey, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't can't talk right now. So here I am 20 minutes after taking care of these helicopter pilots. This is in 1999. I'm looking at them through the doorway. And my wife has just told me that she saw this on CNN. And I said, we live in a different world. This is, you know, the, that information had circled the globe a couple hundred times already. And it had only been 20 minutes since I took care of these guys. So that was a memorable experience. So after your assignment in Germany, you were stationed in Washington, D.C. for an Army-sponsored vascular surgery fellowship. And that just happened to be on 9-11. Tell us about that day and the subsequent days that followed, particularly since the Pentagon was one of the buildings attacked by that terrorist event and you worked at a military hospital. That was an eventful day for all of us. Everybody knows where they were on September the 11th, 2001. I happened to be seeing a 
vascular surgery clinic as a vascular surgery fellow in my senior year of training. And I went up to the desk and had just seen a post-op carotid patient. And one of the interns ran up and said, a plane has just hit the Pentagon. And I said, listen, we don't have time for current events here. We've got a very busy clinic, you know, pick up a chart and go see a patient. And, um, you know, I thought that this, this was just another like commuter plane that had veered off and hit the tower, just like in 1993. And a few minutes transpire, about a half an hour goes by and someone else walks up and says, another plane has hit the second tower under attack. And I walked down the hallway to this waiting room in Walter Reed, uh, sixth floor. And, and I looked at this little wooden box of a television that was on the floor in the waiting room where everyone was intently watching. And I saw both towers burning. Uh, that would be the last time I saw them standing. At that point, I got paged. And what a lot of people don't realize is that there were some post-Cold War protocols in place so that if Washington, D.C. came under attack, the principals, if you will, the vice president, the speaker of the house, the, all of the, the secretary of defense, the vice president, everyone would be put on a helicopter and taken to a northern bunker in Maryland called Site R. And on the way, they would pick up the chief of surgery and the chief of medicine from Walter Reed to take them there with them. And they could run the country from underground in this bunker in Northern Maryland. And um, that's exactly what happened on that day. So all of those people had already been picked up. And the associate chief of surgery was a man by the name of Jim Goff, who was also a vascular surgeon. And he knew that I had recent experience in Kosovo triaging casualties. And so he called me up and he said, Ben, a, a plane has just hit the Pentagon. I need you to go down to the ER. There's a bus and a police escort waiting with 10 combat medics and a series of other uh, physicians. And I need you to lead a, a, a surgical team to the Pentagon to treat casualties at the scene. And I said, uh, yes, sir. I hung up the phone, went down to the ER and the rest is kind of history. And it's detailed in a book that uh, my brother wrote. And we can talk about that if you want, uh, or I can just keep talking about that day. It was uh, devastating. I mean, it was just, you know, as we went through the city down 14th street, every siren in the city of Washington, DC, and I mean, every siren was going off and people, it was gridlock in the streets, people in business suits, briefcases, sitting on the sidewalks, uh, weeping, not knowing what to do, uh, where to go. And it was chaos. And, um, so I, you know, as I got on the bus at Walter Reed, I, I noticed that the commanding officer, the, the senior ranked officer on the bus was a man by the name of Colonel Oster. He was an infectious disease doctor. And uh, I said, Colonel Oster, do you have any experience triaging casualties? And he said, no. And I said, do you mind if I take the lead on this? And he said, please, please do by all means. So as we started to head through DC, the seven miles to get to the Pentagon, I asked everyone to take a deep breath and to pause for a couple of minutes and to reflect, reflect why they were here and how they had trained their entire lives to do what they were doing at this moment. And then we proceeded to divide physicians into leaders of different, the four different triage categories, delayed, immediate, minimal, and expectant. So we had a pathologist and a pharmacist with a case of morphine. And I put those two in charge of the expectant category, which was, you know, those who are not expected to live. I then put an orthopedic surgeon and a plastic surgeon in charge of the minimal 
category. Those are people that are minimally wounded, but they can still serve as litter bearers. They can still walk and talk. And then I made myself uh, in charge of the immediate category. The bus driver, um, as he went through the streets, we got on 14th street and it was completely blocked. And I half jokingly, I asked, uh, who was the senior enlisted person on the bus and, a uh, Sergeant Barlow, I'll never forget him. He came up to me, he said, I am sir. And, uh, I said, can you move all these cars in front of me? And I was almost joking because it looked like it was impossible. He said, I'm on it. And he took 10 combat medics and filed off the bus and ran right down the middle of 14th street, banging on windows. And it was from my vantage point, it was like watching the parting of the seas. People started to drive up onto the sidewalks and get out of the way. You know, the army's coming and the bus and the police escort just filed down 14th street and the medics jumped back on the bus. And once we got down to the mall area, it was, um, it was very sobering because it was a perfect day. It was like in the sixties and perfectly sunny, no clouds. And you look across the mall at all of the monuments, the Washington monument, the Capitol building in their full glory. And you looked across the Potomac river and saw this giant plume of black smoke coming out of the Pentagon. And, you know, your heart sinks into your chest. The bus driver was very anxious. He, he drove us across the 14th street bridge and right up uh, across a few barriers and right up to the the wall of the Pentagon that was on fire. In fact, we, we felt the heat from the flames. We had to walk away from the wall of the Pentagon to get to a, a safer place. And then we began treating casualties at the scene, mostly burns, uh, inhalation injuries. We put them on ambulances and got them out as quickly as possible. And we began to prepare for more casualties. And the reality is what we know now. And that is that, uh, a lot of those people didn't make it. And, you know, we waited and waited and waited and, and they never came. So there are a lot more stories. So if we want to hear more about these stories that are in this book that your, your brother has written. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of information that I thought was really historically interesting. And so I got together with Jim Goff and Ed Lucci and uh, Rick Bonacari uh, a lot of the surgeons who were there and dispatched to the Pentagon, and each of us had our own individual stories. And I, I went to my brother, who was an English major from the University of Washington and a writer. And I said, Link, you really need to write this story. And he knew it was not enough material for a nonfiction book. And so he started to interview some of those who were in the Pentagon at the time. And he put together the whole story of the Pentagon. It took him three and a half years. And the book is called American Phoenix Heroes of the Pentagon on 9-11. And in 2004, we went to a few publishing companies and tried to get this published. And there was really no appetite for another book on 9-11 at that time. So we shelved the project and we waited and we always intended to publish it. And so a few years ago, uh, I convinced my brother to published this for the 20th anniversary and it's received nothing but rave reviews. It's quite an impressive book when you re start to read the stories of people like Tony Rose and Christopher Brayman, Marilyn Wills, some of these people who worked every day in the Pentagon. What people don't realize is that the Pentagon is six and a half million square feet. It's the largest office building in the world with 25,000 people working there on any given day. And if you took the square footage of the trade centers, both towers, that's just over 4 million square feet. So the Pentagon was larger than both towers combined. And yet very few people died in the Pentagon. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. It's all detailed in the book. But, you know, I encourage people to go out and 
and get it if they're interested in reading about uh, some of those heroic stories. And I think some of these people need to be household names uh, because they're the true heroes of that day. In the book, American Phoenix, Heroes of the Pentagon on 9-11, I'm sure or several of your stories are in that book. Give us a little bit of that book in your perspective. So you've driven up to the Pentagon. You can feel the heat from the Pentagon. You've separated these groups and assigned other physician officers into their groups. Tell us what it was like from your perspective in those moments. What I was struck by there is how much help there was. Everybody wanted to help. There were tons of people standing outside the Pentagon, a lot of them medics and corpsmen and and officers. And the guy that had the bullhorn had the control of the crowd because they had the ability to speak to everyone. So uh, the bullhorn was passed to me and I began to start to organize people. At the same time, we had two instances where an FBI agent ran up to me and shouted that a second plane was unaccounted for that was headed for the Pentagon and to evacuate the premises. And this happened twice. And that was met with a lot of screams. And uh, I saw this guy with a blue jacket with the yellow letters FBI just start running toward an underpass. And I said, well, that guy looks like he knows what, is, what he's doing. I'm just going to follow him. And the whole time I'm running, I'm looking up in the sky. I'm looking over the hills of Arlington National Cemetery. And I'm saying to myself, okay, if a plane comes from that direction, I'm just going to jump into this ditch or under that overpass to avoid being killed. And um, that was a pretty harrowing experience. And it happened twice. And then we figured out that that plane that was unaccounted for was the Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville. Yeah, it was it was chaos. It's like anything you could imagine. It, I, I think if you use the analogy of stepping on an anthill and watching all those ants just kind of going around in different directions frantically, and then you come back an hour later and there's organization. That's exactly what it was like. So fast forward a couple of years after that experience, now you're headed out to the Middle East, to Iraq in a deployment situation. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? You know, we had been attacked on 9-11. It was two years later in March, well, a year and a half later in March of 2003. We had already been had a military presence in Afghanistan, and now it was time to go into Iraq. Our unit was the 250th forward surgical team. And we were originally, we were originally supposed to use Turkey for a ground invasion. We were, we were all set to convoy. Uh, I'll just never forget this because we were supposed to convoy along Southern Turkey and then into Northern Iraq to lead the invasion from the North. And all of us were talking about, okay, um, how many batteries are you going to take? Cause we were worried about having batteries for our music players, MP3 players, whatever they were at the time. And uh, at the last minute, Turkey pulled the uh, offering to use their ground space, but they did say, say we could use their airspace. So at the last minute, we got reassigned to support the 173rd Airborne Brigade as their only medical unit. So we flew over to Vicenza, Italy, and that was an amazing event because we had we were going to drop a thousand paratroopers into northern Iraq, the largest combat jump ever in world history. And we had 17 C-17s lined up tip to tail. And the logistics were incredible because you couldn't put all of your medical resources on one chalk, one plane, because if that plane was shot down, you'd lose all your medical resources. So we had to divide up and, and the logisticians divided us onto different planes and 
half of our FST jumped in. I didn't jump in, but half of our FST did to include two surgeons, John Devine and Harry Stinger. And we followed along right behind them. So once we got into Iraq, we set up shop in Bashur and then be began to take four cities. It was uh, Mosul, Erbil, Kirkuk, and then finally Tikrit. And we were the only medical capability for all of Northern Iraq in early 2003. Tell us one of the most memorable clinical cases you encountered on that deployment. Probably the most memorable experience I had during that deployment was we had a lot of special forces guys that were protecting our perimeter and they were assisted by uh, the freedom fighters from Northern Iraq called Peshmerga, those who face death. And the Peshmerga would get injured and they'd bring them in to us. They'd get shot or wounded or blown up or whatever. And they'd bring them to our FST and we would fix them. You know, we'd uh, save their lives. And, but we didn't, we weren't set up as an FST to take care of patients chronically. I mean, normally if we had an, a soldier who was injured, we would put that patient on a plane with a CCAT team and send them straight back to Longstool. And within a matter of days, they'd be back stateside. Well, you couldn't do that with these locals, these Peshmerga. You'd have to go through the state department. It was a big deal. And so I was tasked with finding out how to get those Peshmerga patients back to the local Iraqi hospitals. Colonel Mayville, my brigade commander, I went to a brigade update one morning and he called on me and he said, uh, Major Starnes, I need you to, actually it was Lieutenant Colonel at that time, Lieutenant Colonel Starnes, I need you to make contact with the Iraqi surgeons and figure out a way to get these injured soldiers back to their appropriate facilities. And I said, pardon me, sir, but um, I think I may have missed the class in medical school on how to make contact with enemy force surgeons. <laughs> and everybody in the room laughed. And he said, well, what you need to do is just go over to the talk uh, this afternoon and just ask for a guy named Bob. He wears a green sweatshirt and jeans. <laughs> I said, okay. So um, that afternoon I went over to the talk and I said, hey, has anybody seen a guy named Bob? And they all pointed over to this guy sitting and there he was. He was a middle-aged man, the green sweatshirt and jeans. And I said, hi, Bob, um, I need to make contact with Iraqi surgeons. He said, okay, meet me here tomorrow morning. Uh, I'll pick you up and we'll head down to um, Mosul and uh, we'll make contact. And I just, I really, it was kind of bizarre. I had no idea what was going on. Well, so I met Bob the next morning. He's got his same garb on. I mean, he's got his green sweatshirt and I'm wearing my full battle rattle. So I've got everything on, got my helmet and my weapon. And so we get in a car and we just literally drive right off of the compound. And I, we're going past the tanks that are pointing outward and past the snipers who are laying down in the field. And we go right out into Northern Iraq and we're driving through the countryside. And I, I'm like, what is going on here? It's just me and Bob <laughs> driving to Mosul. So we went to a a safe house in, uh, what was it? I think it was Sulaymaniyah. Sulaymaniyah. Yeah. That was a place where there was a safe house where we went in and then we were joined by about five or six trucks, Toyota trucks filled with Peshmerga that had AK 47s. And they escorted us down into Mosul. It was very, um, unsettling because there were people walking right up to our car. I was the only joker that had a target. I was wearing all my full battle rattle. So I looked like you know, a standout. And I was pretty nervous about this, but, um, you know, one guy walked up to the side of my car and I just, I pulled out my nine millimeter and I just pointed it at the door 
And I said, if this guy reaches in, I'm just going to pull the trigger. I mean, I'm not an infantry guy or anything, but I was worried for my life. Anyway, I met the minister of health in Mosul, and he gave me the names of several different Iraqi surgeons and physicians in northern Iraq. We then made a relationship. And um, so we started to head head back toward Sulaymaniyah, the safe house. And we got into the city there and Bob just turned into a different person. He, you know, I said, Hey, I'm going to just stop here at this place and go to the bathroom. He goes, no, get back in the car. We got to get out of here. And he starts tearing out of the town and he's driving like a maniac. And we get out of that, that area. And I said, Bob, what, what the hell just happened back there? He said, Oh, nothing. You know, there's a nice place to stop up here where we can get some kebabs and, and, you know, relax. And I'm like, I just had no idea what was going on. It turns out that Bob worked for the CIA. And of course, and he saw or sensed something that was unusual. And that's how those guys stay alive in those situations. I mean, he may have seen a sniper on a roof or something that didn't look right, but he got us out of that scenario. And then we went into this kebab place, which was empty. And I looked up, it was very surreal. I looked up in the corner and there was Bill O'Reilly from Fox News just talking into the room. And I said, this is like the twilight zone. I mean, here I am in Iraq with a guy named Bob, completely unsafe. And here's Fox News on in Iraq. (laughs) That was 2003. So you then went back to Iraq with the same unit in 2004, this time supporting the first ID. Tell us about that experience. Yeah. So that was a totally different place at that point. So the beginning of the Iraqi war, it was, we took that country in about a hundred hours and um, had control of it. And then there was this lull of activity. We would have the occasional incursion or occasional motor vehicle accident or something would happen, or there would be a friendly fire accident where a soldier would get shot. There's always something going on. But when I went back the second time, as soon as I stepped off the C-17, a 105 millimeter rocket came right over my head and hit the ground right next to the gym. And like many of those old weapons, it was a dud. And thankfully, but all I could see was smoke coming out of this hole in the, in the ground. And I said, well, this is a different place than I remember. And, um, and it was just much, much less friendly. It was, it, that was when they started beheading people, catching people, reporters and things and beheading them. And it turned into an entirely different place. That was the time also when uh, we caught Saddam Hussein. And um, I was about 25 miles to the north of where they caught him. And I remember my reaction. I remember the town's reaction. I remember I was out doing my laundry that day. And, uh, you know, it wasn't unusual for the people in that region when they celebrated something like a wedding or something special, they would go out and fire their weapons into the air. And we would have patients occasionally that had injuries from raining bullets, uh, head injuries, chest injuries. So I heard this, you know, commotion going on and a lot of weapons going off firing their AK-47s into the air. So I decided it was a good idea to go in and put my helmet on and my full battle rattle, came back out and started doing my laundry again. And then it just kept going and it kept getting louder and louder. So I walked up to the top of the uh, hangar that was next to our unit and looked out over the city and could see everyone celebrating, waving flags and just celebrating. I said, something's happened. I went in and sure enough, turned AFN on, that's the Armed Forces Network. And um, there he was, uh, we had caught him caught Saddam Hussein. And uh, that was a very memorable, memorable time. What would you say is the most memorable clinical case you have from any of your deployments? Oh, by far, I think uh, it's the story of Aya. So we had gone downtown in um, 
Kirkuk to a place called Azadi Hospital. It had been renamed Azadi or Freedom Hospital. And we would go in and do cases with the Iraqi surgeons. And uh, while I was there doing a thoracotomy one day on a guy with lung cancer, a baby was born by the name of Ayat, which means proof of God. It's also in the word Ayatollah. But Ayat was a little girl who was born with a tracheoesophageal fistula. And my uh, daughter had just been born and was nearly uh, just a couple of months old. And so this hit home to me. I, I said, well, what would you normally do? And they said, we would send this uh, child to Baghdad. And I said, well, is that possible? And they said, no, it would take about four or five days to get her there. So I knew that this child was going to die if we didn't fix her tracheal esophageal fistula. It's a connection between the windpipe and the food pipe. It's a congenital abnormality. I had done several of those with a pediatric surgeon named Dan Roby when I was at Walter Reed, and I was comfortable with them basically taking a two-hour-old infant and opening the chest and fixing the TE fistula. And so I did that in an Iraqi hospital where the anesthesiologist was smoking a cigarette uh, behind me, and we saved her. And she's alive to this day. She's the same age as my youngest daughter. So your training scenario was general surgery first and then training as a vascular surgeon. Currently, vascular surgery is becoming much more specialized and no longer requiring years of general surgery training. How can a vascular surgeon be prepared to take care of generalized wartime trauma cases that they may encounter? I think that what's happening now is we're realizing that the standard guardrails, if you will, for training general surgeons and other specialized surgeons are shifting and general surgery residents are doing less and less vascular surgery for sure, because it involves different techniques, different skill sets, different equipment. And the army has recognized this and they're now allowing general surgeons who are deployable surgeons to come and work at civilian trauma centers like ours in Seattle, Harborview Medical Center. I know we have that arrangement right now. Actually, my unit, the 250th FST, uh, has a surgeon who is embedded at Harborview Medical Center. So I think if we're smart about this, we're going to have surgeons, army surgeons that are able to train in civilian environments where they'll get exposure to some of these injuries and be comfortable managing them in the future. The other thing is that the character of warfare in general has changed, in my opinion. I mean, we have more drone airstrikes. We have less episodes where soldiers are actually physically on the battlefield. And that's going to change the way we practice surgery on the battlefield. So there have been a lot of advances in vascular surgery just in the 20 years since your last deployment in 2004. With all the advanced technologies and minimally invasive techniques, do you think that these can be used on the battlefield? And how should military surgical teams take care of vascular injuries as we move forward? I would say that, that with the technologies that we have nowadays, look at just communication in general. Look at the power of your smartphone that you hold in your hand. You can take video with that. You can take pictures with that. You can connect that up to a transducer and do point of care ultrasound with just that technology that is in the palm of your hand that you put in your front pocket. So I think that the advances like those, I mean, the pace of innovation is just skyrocketing. We're going to have advanced imaging, the ability to do these types of procedures on the battlefield. There's no question in my mind. And that's the future. And it's going to be people like you that invent that future. You've been a, a vascular surgeon for many years now. You are world-renowned in your specialty. What would you describe as your most challenging case? Well, when I first came out of my general surgery training, I thought I was 
the cat's meow. I thought I was, I knew everything. And then I went and practiced in Germany and realized that I didn't have an experienced attending across the table from me, helping guide me through the operation. So I had a completely different mindset when I went back two years later to do my fellowship. Instead of going straight from residency into fellowship, which is what happens a lot these days, I had a period of time where I practiced on my own between residency and fellowship. So I realized what I didn't know. And so when I went back to do my fellowship, I approached that with a completely different mentality. I wanted to know every detail of how we got to where we were. I took detailed notes. I had drawings in a a notebook where I made notes on all sorts of things. And so I feel very comfortable doing just about any vascular operation you could imagine. I would say probably the most challenging that we do are are some of the open thoracoabdominal aneurysm repairs, uh, because that does require skill and it does require speed. One of the things I've learned in my career is to go fast, you need to slow down. And some of the more experienced surgeons will tell you exactly that. You take one bite and you do it right the first time, not a very rushed bite where it's not the perfect bite. And then you have to go back and throw a repair stitch or redo it again or, or do something like that. So when you slow down, you actually become faster at operating. And I, I would say that those are my favorite cases because they, it does require some degree of technical skill. When you left the military, you became the chief of vascular surgery at University of Washington, Harborview. Tell us what lessons you learned from the military that really helped you as you made the transition to that job. The military trains leaders and it's in our blood coming out of the military. And the reason that there are so many military leaders and physicians that go on to become successful in the civilian world is that you realize when you've been in a deployed environment, and this strikes you at one point in your career, but you realize that you are replaceable. And so if you're killed on the battlefield, you may be the most capable vascular surgeon in the world. But if you're hit by a mortar round and you're vaporized and you're killed, the army just snaps its finger and it puts another one of those, another one of you in your place. And what you learn is a very large degree of humility and that you are replaceable. And once you embrace that, you approach life and your professional life in a very different way. And that's how I approached it at the University of Washington. I was intimidated. I was like, man, I'm going to the University of Washington. This is where Gene Strandis was chief of vascular surgery, one of the most famous vascular surgeons in our lifetime. And um, what I found is that it was a fertile substrate. It was in need of someone to lead the division. And I just happened to be that person. And all I did was just roll up my sleeves and start working. And I worked harder than everyone else in the division. I didn't complain. And um, I think when people realized that I wasn't going to just sit back and try and dictate what people did and actually work, that uh, stimulated them to kind of get behind me and help build the division out. What advice would you give to a college or medical student that was interested in pursuing military medicine as a career? It's the best decision I ever made. I'll tell you that. You know, I've met some of the best people like you, Wayne. I mean, I've, I've met some of the finest individuals that I'll ever meet. And I've made some of the relationships that I'll never have the opportunity to weld again. Um, and uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And I would encourage everyone to at least consider it. Uh, you do serve your country. You have to be a person that, in my mind, that is a person who envisions life as the glass 
half full, not half empty. You can't be a victim. You can't think that, oh, woe is me. The army's treating me like crap and I'm stuck here in the army. No, you have to go out there and in some instances make lemonade with lemons. I would encourage people who are in the military to squeeze the military for as much as you can, uh, to get as much experience as you can to make yourself better, to provide better care for your patients. So a hundred years from now, when your future family unearths this in a time capsule and they listen <laughs> to this podcast, what do you want your future family to hear about you and your experience with military medicine? That's a very uh, deep question, but um, the way I would answer that is very simple. It's that I hope that they would realize that I was a good and competent surgeon and simply a humble person and that I practiced surgery with humility. I didn't shortcut my efforts on any occasion, and I always focused on doing the best I could do and took advantage of each and every opportunity to advance the cause, if you will, for future military surgeons. I knew that by forging a path that it would help those behind me succeed. That's all I would hope anyone would remember. Well, we've really enjoyed the privilege to speak with Dr. Ben Starnes on Wardocs. Ben, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And, and thanks you for your service to our nation. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.